0: We're now at James five thirteen to 20, with some more exhortations. And just a, a brief correction. Last time I said a politician in Oklahoma, it's actually in Texas, in the Fort Worth area of Texas, a politician uh, in Texas, he said that for the child uh, transition surgery, that is to mutilate his sexual organ and make, make a male a female or a female a male, however, whatever they're doing, he said that he, um, it's between the child, um, the, the parents, and the Lord, he said. He said it's something like that. It's a politician in Texas. Whatever the case, that's detestable. We must do what's right always. James 5, verse 12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith... Will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again. And the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death, and will cover a multitude of sins. Amen. 5 verse 12, he says, But above all... Of- Greatest importance. It's interesting that he says that in reference to this. Yeah. And why so? Well, in this context, the context is a context of suffering, hardships, persecutions, even sickness, as he says in verse 14. In this context and in the context of praying to the Lord about this matter, it's easy in our prayers and in our assertions in great confidence, to pray to God and swear to God that you're going to do one thing or another if God answers your prayers, if God delivers you from your suffering. Many people do this. They will make an assertion. They'll make a prediction. They'll say, if God heals me of this disease, then for the rest of my life, I will do this or that. They might say it just as a word, but they might also say it as an oath. They might say it as a vow, taking it more seriously, that this is what they will do. Now, he's warning here against falsely swearing or rash oaths. He's not warning here against the making of oaths as a proper thing to do in its place. He's not speaking about that. He's speaking of doing it falsely or rashly. He's not speaking against it as an absolute that in the New Testament, we are not to swear an oath anymore. It was possible in the Old Testament, but not in the New Testament. We have to clarify this because there are Christian denominations who say, that it is prohibited in the New Covenant to swear any oath. We cannot do it whenever we're trying to settle a dispute. We cannot do it in the courtroom. Politicians, if there's a Christian politician, he should not put his hand on the Bible and swear before the Lord that he will uphold the Constitution or follow the Bible or anything like that. He cannot and should not do that. And to do so, it would be a sin in their theology. Yes, they consider it a sin and a heresy to swear an oath, whether you are a witness in the courtroom, on the witness stand, or whatever. They say it's a sin to do so. And they misinterpret James 5.12. They also misinterpret Matthew chapter 5. They misinterpret these two, these are the two main New Testament passages they misinterpret to say so. Now, many people, and even true believers, they do swear oaths. Sure. They do, but they don't do it falsely. But in that interpretation, the false interpretation, they say we are sinning, and therefore... It is an evil and they avoid it. They also say you can't be a politician. No Christians should be politicians. And you, no Christians can be soldiers. No military, no political office, no swearing oaths. They all usually go together for them. But that's not what the Bible's teaching. It's talking about doing it rashly. It's talking about doing, doing it falsely. That's what he means. Because one scripture cannot contradict another scripture. Jesus, our Lord, in Matthew 5:33 to 37, he makes a similar point to James. So, Jesus and James make a similar point, or the same point. And if they do make that point, how are we to understand it? Right. Taking one scripture and harmonizing it with another scripture. Matthew five thirty three. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be, Yes? Yes or no? No. And anything else and anything beyond these is of the evil one or of evil, more likely the evil one, Satan. Right. Doesn't Jesus say it in a similar way to James? James 5:12, especially when we reach Matthew 5:37, 30, uh, verse 37. Yes? Yes? Or no, no. Okay, look at 33. He says, don't make any false vows. Don't make any false vows. He's teaching in Matthew 5 and in James 5, they're both teaching that our word should be truthful words. In day-to-day speech, day-to-day activities, we should be speaking the truth. Because those who speak lies belong to Satan. John 8:44 You are of your father the devil. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth. Whenever he speaks he speaks from his own nature for he is a a, a liar and the father of lies. So John 8:44 Satan and liars go together. We should be truth tellers always. Right. That's the basic point here because if you don't have that frame of mind, then you will, in pretending and in trying to get your way with people, make foolish, false, rash vows and not be able to keep them. Right. That's the point he's making. Don't be that way. That's the same with James. Now, to show that this is actually the case, these references will find... First in the book of Matthew. Let's go to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23. Matthew 23 16 to 22. Matthew 23:16. 23, 23:16. 16. 23, 16. Woe to you, blind guides. Who say? Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important? The gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering upon it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, he who swears, swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And he who swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Does he absolutely forbid swearing right here? No, he's actually correcting it and putting it in its place, giving it a proper perspective. That's what he's doing here. We may also find in Matthew 23, 6 to 12, not the same issue, but something similarly. That is, sometimes the Bible will speak in hyperbole, making a point, but the point is not to be taken in the extreme in an absolute way. Matthew 23, 6. And they love the place of honor at banquets, and the chief seats in the synagogues, and respectful greetings in the marketplaces, and being called by men rabbi. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Did Jesus here forbid that anybody on earth could be called a teacher? Did he mean it in the universal and absolute sense? Then we cannot call our school teachers, the children cannot call them teacher? Is that what he meant? Or did he mean in the local church? Did he mean in the church you can't call anybody teacher? If that's the case, then why is it in Ephesians 4, 11, it calls the pastors, pastors and teachers? Pastors and teachers. 1 Corinthians 12, 28 and 29. Not, all are not teachers, are they? In the local church, they're called teachers. What about... When he says, Father, one is your Father, he who is in heaven. Does that mean that we cannot call any of our physical fathers fathers? No, that's absurd. That's absurd. Does it mean we cannot call any of our spiritual fathers fathers in any sense of the, of the word? No. No. 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians 4, 14 and 15. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. And then what about leader? Can we not call anybody a leader? When we have a group for whatever purpose, whether private or political, we, can we not say leader? What are we supposed to do with that? He didn't mean that. Or what about in the local church? Is no one in the local church to be called a leader? If that's the case, then we have a contradiction because it says in Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. The hyperbole is the point of Matthew 23, 6 to 12, because you have people who love to be called teacher, who both secular and spiritual. They love to be called teacher. They love to be called father. They love to be called leader. He's preaching against that. He's not preaching against the use of the actual word. And the same with the swearing of oaths. That's what he means on that matter. And Jesus himself, if Jesus preached that the scribes and the Pharisees and people generally should not do it, well, Matthew 26, Matthew 26, 63 and 64, Jesus himself did it. Jesus himself submitted to an oath. Matthew 26, 63, but Jesus kept silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven to adjure or an adjuration is to be under an oath. So he submitted to an oath by the high priest. They were charging him and accusing him falsely. And it said in 63, he kept silent about all that. But when he was put under oath, he said, Okay, I'll speak up, and this is what I'll say to you. You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And that was enough for him to be offended and to say that's blasphemy. He deserves to be put to death. Jesus submitted to an oath. There are many examples of this, Old Testament and New Testament. Actually, in the Old, let's go to one example. That would be in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 5. Zechariah chapter 5. 5 verses 3 and 4. Chapter 5 verse 3. Then he said to me, this is the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land, Surely everyone who steals will be purged away according to the writing on one side and everyone who swears will be purged away according to the writing on the other side. A misinterpretation will say, Aha, look at there. Look right there. Through verse 3, Everyone who swears will be purged away. You can't swear. Meaning swear an oath. Not swear profanities and vulgarities, but swear an oath. It says it right there. If anyone swears, he's going to be purged away. The prophet said it. It's, a, it's forbidden even in the Old Testament. No, look at verse 4. Right. I will make it go forth, declares the Lord of hosts. And it will enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. And it will spend the night within that house and consume it with its timber and stones. Who will be punished? It says the thief and the one who swears falsely by my name. That's the problem. That's the sin. Swearing falsely by the name of the Lord when there is no justification for doing so. And if, there, if that does happen, then certainly judgment will take place. As James also says, so that you may not fall under judgment. Now he addresses prayer. Prayer. What do we have in the Christian life? What are our twin practical means for our own comfort? The Word of God and prayer. The Word of God and prayer. In terms of personal uh, relationship and interaction with the Lord. The Word of God and prayer. Now the Word of God is communicated in different ways. It's in church or privately in our own houses like that. And prayer. It could be private or it could be public. But the Word of God and prayer. 5.13 to 18 addresses the prayer. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Pray in the midst of suffering. And what does suffering entail? Suffering entails some of the things he's already just mentioned in chapter 5. Even when we are oppressed, even when we have to wait patiently for whatever suffering to be alleviated, if we have to suffer like the prophets, whether because there's a famine in the land, like Elijah, he's going to mention Elijah, when there's a famine, the wicked are suffering, but even the prophet Elijah is suffering, is he not? And when he does suffer, does he not have to find Water? Find food? Yes, he did. This is in First Kings 16, 17, and 18. First Kings 16, 17, and 18, which recounts these incidents in the life of Elijah. So suffering can be manifold. It can be of various kinds. So what should we do? Pray. pray. Not be discouraged, but pray. Pray. When it happens, go to God in prayer. 13. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. It's interesting, he says, let him sing praises. Praise God, because God has given the joy of the Spirit to you. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah 8.10 When God gives joy then sing. Sing praises. Sing to Him for doing so. Notice, it's either pray or praise. It's not indulgence. It's not self-indulgence. Not even, verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Suffering, prayer. uh, If there's suffering, then pray. If there's cheerfulness or joy, then sing praises. If there is sickness... Call for the elders of the church and let them pray. Let them pray. But none of these say, well, you know, uh, you deserve to splurge. You've had a really rough experience. You deserve to splurge. You deserve to spend a lot of money. You you deserve to go buy that thing that you really, really wanted for yourself. You deserve that relationship. You deserve to cut off this relationship because your your wife or, or your husband... Just not helping you, not satisfying you. So you deserve, since you're suffering in that relationship, you deserve a better partner. People think this way. Or whatever, physical pleasures, uh, vacations, uh, indulgences with different things that stimulate the body, whatever. You deserve it. So just go do it. You're suffering. You're sick. That's not the solution here. Another thing, people often run to the physicians. They run to the physicians. And in modern days, we have a whole industry, the medical doctor industry. That industry is a very influential, very powerful, and also very corrupt industry. And most of these medical doctors don't know what they're talking about. May I say it? They don't diagnose illnesses accurately. They have a very low percentage. Just test it. Test it in the next few months. Test it in the next year. Pay close attention to what happens to yourself if you visit one of these doctors. Pay attention to what happens to your relatives when they visit. Ask, what did the doctor say? Well, the doctor said he didn't know. And he said, we need to do further testing. And then how long does the testing last? Weeks? Months? Months? Years? And how many doctors, medical doctors, do you have to consult? Yeah. So on. Yeah. They keep on going and going and going and trusting in these doctors. But they don't know. They cannot diagnose and they cannot prescribe. I also know that often there's about 10 to 20 basic prescriptions that's in the, that's in the bag of the medical doctor. And whenever he hears something, oh, yes, I know what's going to solve it. And then he writes a prescription for a certain medicine. There's about 10 to 20 common medicines. And that's coming from top to bottom. And then it's making the average person, average man's life miserable because then he gets addicted to drugs as though the drugs are going to help him. But they don't help. They don't help and they harm and they destroy the body. And not only them, but there are all kinds of other physicians. We're not talking, I'm not saying, don't go to a doctor, don't go to a physician, but use your mind. Think about what God's Word says. Think about the circumstances. Think about what's going on with how they're talking to you, what they're recommending to you, and how your situation goes from bad to worse. And just look all around you. That's what's going on. The physicians, the doctors, they don't care about you more than yourself if you're thinking soberly. (coughs) If you're thinking soberly, there is no way that the doctor loves you more than you love yourself. Second Chronicles 16. 2 Chronicles 16. And in the 39th year, 16, verse 12. 2nd Chronicles 16, 12 says, And in the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. His disease was severe. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but... The physicians He did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. He only went there, not the Lord. Now, in First Timothy chapter five, First Timothy chapter five, we have a very interesting solution to a stomach ailment. 1 Timothy chapter 5 it might be interesting to us because normally it's a pill but in 1 Timothy 5:23 it says no longer drink water exclusively but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments use a little wine not much wine a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Yes, one may use things like this to heal sicknesses. Remember also in the parable of the Good Samaritan, what did the, the Samaritan do to help the man who was stranded by the roadside? Luke ten twenty five to 37. What did he use? He used oil and wine to bend and bandage the injured man. Oil and wine. So it's proper and valid to have a proper or a suitable place for those kinds of things, but not trust in men right. and not trust in nature. Nothing like that. Trust in the Lord. And trust in the Lord will be evidenced by this. 5.14 and 15. James 5.14. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Call for the elders of the church. If the elders of the church are called for this purpose, then that means that the elders and the sick man are taking this sickness so seriously that they're calling upon the help of the Lord to heal. Right. The Lord in prayer and anointing him with oil, such as was done in Mark 6, 13. They went about preaching that men should repent and they anointed with oil those who were sick. Mark six thirteen. Why anointing oil with oil? Because oil represents the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit Himself, to re, um, revive the sick man, restore him to health. <clears throat> then in 515, it says, and the prayer offered in faith. In faith. Remember in chapter 1, 2. 8, he called on us to have faith during afflictions. Offer it in faith. That restores one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Is James in 5.15 presenting a guarantee? No. He's already said in 4.13 to 17 that we should not boast about today or tomorrow, About going to such and such a city, spending a year there, engaging in business and making a profit. That's in 4.13, right? When one does that, he is falsely assuming he will have the health and wealth he desires to live there for a year. To travel and even to conduct business to make a profit. He's falsely assuming that. But what should he do instead? 4.15. Yet you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live. Live for the rest of the day today. Wake up tomorrow. Live for a year. Right? We have no guarantee. If the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. If God prevents the travel for whatever reason, then he... Yes, then he closes that opportunity to make a prophet and he, he will redirect us. Yeah. So James does mean that this is conditional upon the secret, mysterious, unrevealed will of God. The will, the revealed will of God is whenever it happens, what should we do? We should pray and we should call for the elders of the church, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord, have faith in our prayer and leave the rest to him. Right. That's what it's teaching. No guarantee of healing from sickness. 5:15 also says, "And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him." If, which means sometimes sickness comes but there's no sin No sin caused the sickness. No sin caused the sickness. Remember John chapter 9? Jesus was asked, teacher or rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And Jesus answered and said, it was neither this man or his parents that sinned, but for the glory of God. So the child born blind did not sin, To become blind. It didn't happen that way. How about in the book of Job? Job chapters 1 and 2. Job is described as a God-fearing man. A blameless and upright man. Fearing God and turning away from evil. Then the afflictions came. Then the afflictions came. There was no cause in Job to bring about his many sufferings, and even his sickness in chapter 2, right. 1 to 10. Not even his sickness was because of his sin. But it may happen because of sin. Sure. Sickness might come because of sin, whether a recent sin or an accumulation of sins. Right. It may happen. How do we know that this is the case? 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11, in partaking of the Lord's Supper, the Corinthians had not properly prepared themselves to partake of the Lord's Supper. We find in 27 to 32, 27 to 32. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. What happened to many of the Corinthians? Some died or slept. Sleep equals death. It's a metaphor of death. Verse 30 says, Many among you are weak and sick because... They wrongly approached the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper. They did not confess sins, but came flaunting their sins to the Lord's Supper. So, it may be a sickness caused by sin. But when this happens, prayers are offered in faith, and faith produces repentance. Then, they will be forgiven Him. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John one nine. Then five sixteen. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. Confess sins to one another and pray for one another. Does this confess sins to one another mean that whenever we sin, we sin privately? Either in our own mind, in our own thoughts, our words, we're by ourselves, or we're with another, that every time we sin in these private settings that we're supposed to publicly tell everyone in the church, this is how I sin today, every time the church meets, this is how I sin the past three days or four days since we last met. Is this what it means? No. No, some people take it that way, that they have to unload to everybody in a public setting their personal sins? No. It depends on the nature of the sin. How was the sin committed? Who was offended? So then, if one man offends another man, sins against another man, then the offender should humble himself and confess his sins to the one offended. And then the one offended... Should forgive the one who is confessing his sins. Both the offender should confess and then the offended should forgive. That's how he means it in 5:16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Shall we clarify this? In Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians 4:32 Ephesians four, thirty-two. it says, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. He says to be forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. How did God in Christ forgive us? Did God automatically forgive us of our sins? The moment Jesus died on the cross, did that mean that there was universal forgiveness of sins to everybody? No. No, that's absurd. There is no universal forgiveness, no universal salvation without what? Repentance. (laughs) Even Jesus preached this in Luke 24, 47. He says, Repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Luke 24, 47. 46 and 47. Repentance. So God forgave us in Christ when we repented. Right. And we should forgive others of their sins when they repent. Right. Luke 17. Luke 17, 3. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. It says, if he repents, forgive him. We're not talking about bearing a grudge or retaliation. Right. The Bible will also prohibit that. It does prohibit that. But what, what we're talking about here is... You cannot pretend that forgiveness and reconciliation has occurred until the offender has confessed and appealed for the forgiveness of the offended. Then there's proper forgiveness and proper reconciliation. James 5:16 First the principle and then the example or illustration. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. The effective prayer of a righteous man. How is it that the prayer is effective if it is of a righteous man? That can accomplish much. Effective in a righteous man. This is another indication that the outcry in verse four is the outcry of outcry of the righteous, as he says in five six, the righteous man, and now here in five sixteen, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So the righteous poor cry out to God and plead with God for deliverance from their afflictions. It does take Righteousness, and these are the verses here uh, written on the board. Proverbs fifteen and verse eight. Proverbs fifteen eight. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is His delight. Fifteen twenty nine. The Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayer of the righteous. Twenty one. 27, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? 28.9. he who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Right. Our prayers must conform to the word of God, and if they don't, then they are an abomination. And our prayers must be offered as we are righteous. We cannot be living in sin and then ask God to answer our prayers. Cannot be living in sin and have prayers answered. 1 Peter 3, 7. The New Testament has this warning. 1 Peter 3, 7. You husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel. Since... She is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. When the husband is disobeying God, it says here, your prayers will be hindered. If there is disobedience, the prayers will be hindered. That is, God hears them audibly but he will will not hear them graciously. He won't answer them when the husband lives in opposition, in sinful opposition to his wife. And it's not just husband. This is just one example since he's in the context of explaining the husband-wife relationship, 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7. This would be applicable to all situations as James is preaching. Not only all situations, but to all Christians. With the example of Elijah. 5.17 Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was a man with a nature like ours. We have the same nature. This is not based on whether one is a prophet of God or an apostle of God or Jesus Christ himself. God isn't looking at our prayers in that regard. He's looking at our prayers in reference to our human weak, weak human nature but righteous in Christ. Our weak human na- nature but righteous in Christ. Our human nature is like every other man's nature. Like Acts 4.15, he says, We are also men of the same nature as you. We are men of the same nature as you. Acts chapter 10, 10.26, 10, But Peter raised him up saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. He said that to Cornelius to prohibit Cornelius from worshiping him. So our position or status Our office of ministry, that has nothing to do with this. It has to do with whether we are righteous men in the sight of God. That's why he says this. Because people will say, well, the prophets, they had a special relationship for their prayers to be answered. Job had a special, Elijah had a special relationship. That's not the factor, according to James. Notice also, Elijah's prayer was twofold. First, he prayed for a curse. Elijah prayed for a curse on his wicked countrymen, which also impacted him. This is 1 Kings 16 to 18. First, he prayed for a curse, that is, for no rain to come on the whole land for three and a half years. 3 years and 6 months which is confirmed in Luke 4:25. Luke 4:25 Jesus says it lasted 3 years and 6 months. No rain. Remember we said that the land of Israel is dependent upon rain. Yep. The two rainy seasons, the early and the late rains. But no rain. So if there's a famine, then what happens? I mean if there's no rain, if there's a drought, drought leads to famine. Famine leads to starvation, right? And suffering. It leads to many people being poor and then fighting each other and killing each other, being suspicious of each other because there are limited resources. Correct? Elijah prayed for the curse. And he's saying here that Elijah, we may do the same. He's using Elijah as an example. We may do the same. Uh, let me make sure we understand this situation of pronouncing a curse that we may do the same. 1 Corinthians 16, If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Right. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. It also says, in reference to the uh, Paul and Barnabas. It says this in Acts 13, 51. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. Shaking the dust off the feet is a curse pronounced against him, symbolized with the dust being shaken off the feet. 18, 6, Acts eighteen six. And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I shall go to the Gentiles. And we have a further curse in 1 John. 1 John chapter 5. We cite these New Testament examples because another heresy is that it's a sin to pronounce a curse. There is no setting, no occasion to pronounce a curse on another in prayer. But 1 John 5, 16 says... If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. I do not say that he should make request for this equals don't pray for him. Let the judgment of God fall on him committing sin leading to death. But on the other hand, for a blessing, 517, James, um, 517 and 518. And he prayed again, 518, and the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. And why did God do this? Because there was a righteous man, Elijah. So if God will do it for him, he may also do it for us. So pray in faith and do not doubt the power of God or the love of God to answer our prayers. Lastly, we've come to 5, 19 and 20. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins my brethren in this chapter from verse seven he has repeatedly used this expression either brethren or my brethren five seven brethren nine brethren ten brethren twelve my brethren and now finally five nineteen my brethren brethren or brothers he means to appeal to them being in the family of God. Being in the family of God with like and similar difficulties in life, they should be concerned for each other and work with each other, not work against each other in the family of God. And if we are in the family of God, and he appeals as brother to brother, elder brother to younger brother, he says, If any among you strays from the truth, And one turns him back. It's possible for there to be in the local church one who strays from the truth. If any among you. If any. We might not know who it is. We might not anticipate it. It might happen suddenly that someone strays from the truth. In the local church. In the local church, somebody straying from the truth. To bring attention to this fact might be a shock and might even be offensive. How can can the preacher say that everybody here listening to the sermon, everybody who's gathered uh, on the Lord's Day to worship, everyone who is gathered is not truly gathered in the name of the Lord. How could a preacher say that? That's very offensive. But that's what James just said. If any among you strays from the truth, any among you in the local church strays from the truth, walks away from faith and faithfulness to the gospel. If he walks away from it, he's strayed from the truth and to falsehood. This possibility is presented in Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3:12. 3, Hebrews 3 12. 12 to 14. Hebrews 3:12 to 14. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God but encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. He says here twice, any one of you have an evil, unbelieving heart. It doesn't look like that right now, but it may come to the surface. Your true heart may come to the surface because of the deceitfulness of sin and fall away from God. But those who do not fall away are those who partake from beginning to end, according to verse 14. 2 Corinthians 13.5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. 1 Corinthians 5.11, but but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. He's called brother, but he's so-called if he should be an immoral person or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. James preaches the same. We have to also notice, however, that James 5.19, he's preaching repentance. He says, And one turns him back. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way, The focus here is not so much on the sinner who is turned back, which is a part of the passage, but he's saying, let him know. This is meant to encourage those who would attempt to help a sinner in his sin. You see? And one turns him back, the one is the helper. Him is the sinner. Let him, who's the him? The helper know that he who turns a sinner, that the helper who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Why is James here bringing attention to the helper, to the advisor, the counselor, the biblical counselor on this matter? because the biblical counselor often the biblical counselor often does need to know that true love is the confrontation of another's sins. Yes. He needs to be convinced of that. If he is not convinced, what will he not do? He won't use the forbidden four-letter word, sin. sin. <laughs> he'll never say sin. He'll, he, he'll say, you're, you're, it's your upbringing. It's your personality. It's your, it, your environment. You know, you don't have the best of circumstances. You know, everyone is different. Nobody's perfect. People will say things like that. And even counselors who are pretending to help others in their sins will speak that way. They refuse to say Sin. But didn't James say sin? Yeah. He said it. Cover a multitude of sins. If you want the other, the sinner, to be forgiven, to for have his uh, sins covered, you have to call it sin. You have to call it sin. That has to take place. We also have to understand it is a matter of life and death. Save his soul from death. Because whoever does not repent... Whoever is mastered by, is a slave of his sin, he's in a state of death and the wrath of God. But when he is delivered from it, his soul is saved from death. The counselor, the helper, trying to help the sinner, must be convinced of this. Otherwise, he will be a coward. He will be a pretender. He will not open his mouth and say what needs to be said. Moreover, he will not use the word of God. He'll use all kinds of other gimmicks in the world. Like James said, the earthly, natural, demonic wisdom of the world, James 3.15. But when we use the word of God, then that's true love. That is true confrontation. That is true assistance to the sinner. We must use the word of God. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. And as well, uh, better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6, and verse 17. Proverbs 29, 5. A man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. When we flatter the sinner, when we say, you know, I'm just like you, Uh, we're all in it together, God really loves you, don't worry about that. God's love for you is secure. Don't worry about that. That's how they flatter. The counselor flatters the sinner. The sinner doesn't need to hear any of that. He needs to hear about the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and the only solution to the sinfulness of man to deliver him from the wrath of God to come from eternal death. He needs to hear about the death and resurrection of Christ and the need to truly believe in Christ. Otherwise, we are flatterers. We are flatterers. If we don't describe the situation as it really is, we are false teachers, we are flatterers. And this, we have numerous examples of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 4, you recall that at Nazareth, when he proclaimed After he read the prophet Isaiah, he proclaimed that the scripture was fulfilled in their hearing. It says that all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. That was the positive side. But then a bit of skepticism arose also. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? Did Jesus leave it alone when he saw their, uh, their biting criticism of him? Nope. Did he leave it alone? This is a carpenter's son. How could such wonderful, gracious words be coming from his lips? How could that be? Did Jesus just leave it alone when they sinned in front of him? No. He said, truly, I say to you, verse 24, no prophet is welcome in his own Uh, in his hometown. And then verse 23, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Then he uses Elijah and Elisha as examples of them healing foreigners, but not any men of Israel. And then they were so incensed, it says, verse 28, and all in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they rose up and cast him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. Because that was open rebuke. Yep. Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Luke chapter 9. Luke 9 57 to 62 Luke 9:57 to 62 I once heard one preacher twice preach this passage and both times he hinted at the thought that this was unjustifiable and over the top it was harsh and therefore unloving he didn't say the word unloving but he did say harsh And was very amazed that Jesus would say these things to these three men, who are pretentious disciples. Not true, but pretentious disciples. 57. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go, proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord. But first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Have you ever heard a modern pastor speak this way with a potential disciple? No. Because they don't have love for the dead souls of men. They don't speak this way. But Jesus did. Did Jesus sin? No. Are we not to emulate him? Yes. Then let's speak that way as the occasion presents itself. Another one, sinner. This is Luke eleven thirty-seven 37 to 54. Luke eleven thirty-seven 37 to 54. They are at the table. Jesus is at the table with a Pharisee and others. He's at the table. The Pharisee is serving lunch. Have you ever heard this expression? I can't bite the hand that feeds me. <laughs> You know, when someone, a superior, does something wrong, sinful, criminal even, they say, well, I can't bite the hand that feeds me as an excuse not to speak up and tell the truth. Well, Jesus is biting the hand of this Pharisee because he's at the Pharisee's home and Jesus is having lunch. He, the Pharisee notices that Jesus did not first ritually wash his hands. The Pharisee didn't say anything according to this. He just had the look on his face. It says he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. He just had the stunned look, apparently, because he doesn't say anything. Verse 39, but the Lord said to him, so Jesus made an issue out of it. Wouldn't we be advised today? Listen, listen, he didn't say anything. Yeah, he was offended, but he didn't say anything. So don't say anything. Let the Holy Spirit lead you before you say something. People use God's name in vain. Let the Holy Spirit lead you before you say anything because he didn't say anything to you. He just had the look on his face and you might have the wrong impression about why he had that look, correct? Isn't that the modern advice to be loving and to follow the Holy Spirit? But Jesus didn't do that. He actually pronounced woes on them, called them foolish, and pronounce curses or woes on them. Then, 45, verse 45. And one of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But he said, Sorry. Please forgive me, I was over the top. Not at all. But he said, Woe to you lawyers as well. And then he condemns them. And... At the end of it, 53, and when he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. In today's worldview, Christian worldview today, people will say Jesus was unsuccessful, he was unloving and ungracious. They're ready to attack him. They're very hostile. He didn't build bridges. He didn't build relationships. There was no friendship evangelism, relational evangelism going on here. He just said the truth. And he let happen whatever needed to happen. People today, and I put the main responsibility on pastors, they do not tell the people the truth. They do not do so. James warned us in James 3.1, Let many of you, my brethren, not become teachers. For as such, we shall incur a stricter judgment. Whatever fear of man we have, whatever is on our mind, we have to reject it, repent of it, and just do what is necessary in order to save the souls of men, in order for their sins to be forgiven. Because without the word of Christ and the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ uses the Word of Christ. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to produce a child of God. And the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to sanctify the child of God. Let's believe that. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.